Welcome to First Presbyterian Church of Evanston. This Sunday's sermon was given by Senior Pastor, Rev. Dr. Ray Hilton. If you'd like more information about First Presbyterian Church of Evanston, please visit firstpresevanston.org. Our scripture reading today is from the book of Isaiah, chapter 64, verses 1 through 9. Please join me in a prayer for illumination. Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may hear with joy what you say to us today. Amen. Oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down, so that the mountains would quake at your presence, as when the fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, so that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome deeds that we did not expect, you came down the mountains, quaked at your presence. From ages past, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God beside you who works for those who wait for him. You meet those who gladly do right, those who remember you in your ways. But you were angry, and we sinned. Because we hid yourself, we transgressed. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy cloth. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls on your name or attempts to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have delivered us into the hand of our iniquity. Yet, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay and you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Do not be exceedingly angry, O Lord, and do not remember iniquity forever. Now consider we are all your people. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, my brothers and sisters, and God bless you. Thank you for joining us in worship. Today is the first Sunday of Advent, and so I wish to you and your family a season that will be filled with hope and with peace and with joy and with love. Over the next four Sundays in Advent, we're leaning into the theme, God came near. And those three words seem simple on the surface, but they, they pack huge implications for our life and our faith in the world. These three words remind us that Almighty God did not leave the world to its own devices, but God in Christ, God took on flesh in Christ and came into our world, and he's coming again. God's not finished with restoring and renewing our world, he's coming again. So I have a question for you this morning. Have you ever been in a situation of crisis, an emergency, a life or death situation that was so desperate that it had the power to almost undermine the foundation on which your life is standing? And for many of us, the answer is yes. And for many of us, we could easily point to the year 2020 and all of the changes and the difficulties brought by the COVID-19 pandemic. But if we're really honest, we will say that nobody wants these kinds of events to come into our lives. 
we wish we could live our lives free of these kinds of difficulties and emergencies. And so as I was preparing the sermon, I went back to a book that I had read years ago, wrote by C.S. Lewis, A Grief Observed. And I would encourage you to take that up and look at it, read it if you haven't. And by the way, C.S. Lewis was born 122 years ago today. He was born on November the 29th, 1889. And in the book, he warned of what he calls a rational and simplistic faith, a faith that crumbles when confronted with suffering as a personal reality rather than as a mild intellectual, what he calls disturbance. And this is what happened to him when his beloved wife, Joy, died. Things started coming apart. The events of her death shook him to the core of his existence and his, and his relationship with God. And it was during this chapter of his life when he wrote words about prayer that I think will resonate with many of us and could actually help many of us. And so I pick up his thoughts that he wrote in his journal. He said, meanwhile, where is God? This is one of, most, one of the most disquieting symptoms when you are happy, so happy, that you have no sense of needing him, so happy that you are tempted to feel his claims upon you as, a, as a, an interruption. If you remember yourself and you turn to him with gratitude and praise, you will be, or so it feels, welcomed with open arms. And then he says these words, but go to him when your need is desperate. Go to him when all other help is vain. And what do you find? A door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that, silence. You may as well turn away. Have you ever felt this way? And I wonder to myself, maybe Lewis with all of the intellect and the spiritual depth that he had, he must have read Isaiah 64. He must have read today's text because Isaiah 64, one through nine is a desperate prayer for God to act immediately, dramatically, decisively to save God's people out of their troubles. What is prompting this desperate prayer? For those of you who know biblical history, you'll remember that in 586 or 587 BC, the mighty, unstoppable Assyrian army invaded Judah. And when they came, they decimated the land. They destroyed the city. They burnt the holy, beautiful temple in Jerusalem with fire. And you'll see that referenced in Isaiah 64 and verse 11 and they depopulated the cities. You'll see that in Isaiah 64 and verse 10, they, they, the, the cities, the holy cities, the prophet says, became a wilderness. And then after 70 years of exile in Babylon, the people return and they're returning in drips and drabs. They're returning at different times and in different ways, but they're returning with high hopes and expectations that life will 
return someday to pre-exilic times, that God would somehow provide a spiritual vaccine that would heal all their problems, heal them of all of the pandemic that they've been through, and life would somehow return to normal. But the reality is, friends, that did not happen. All the glorious promises, all the beautiful visionary words that you read of Isaiah in Isaiah 40 through 55, and you haven't read those or you haven't read them in a while, I would encourage you to go back and see why these people would be so crestfallen. Because the words of Isaiah in, in 40 through 55 are so soaring and so uplifting and so hopeful, and all of those things are yet to be materialized. And so the prayer then has a tone of lament and disappointment. And so the, pro the prophet offers up the kind of prayer I think that all of us can relate to, and that is one of the reasons why we're preaching it this morning. It's a prayer that all of us can relate to, and it comes from deep inside the soul of people who are desperate. But I want you to notice something, that the prayer it actually doesn't start where we read this morning, Isaiah 64, 1 through 9. The prayer actually starts all the way back in chapter 63, starting maybe at verse 7, to the end of Isaiah 64, verse 12. And it's a wonderful prayer. It's a long prayer, but it's a, it's a powerful prayer that pulls you into the lament and the anger and the disappointment and the suffering of the people. Now, what might these desperate circumstances teach us about prayer. There's something here that will teach us about prayer, something to teach us about ourselves, something here to teach us about God. What are these things? Now, just follow me as I talk with you about what these desperate circumstances can teach us when we pray. Well, first of all, I think this prayer invites us to express our disappointment with God. Did you know that it's not wrong to feel and express disappointment with God? Did you know that there are so many life circumstances that bring on us this need to say, God, what's going on? I'm disappointed. It could be that you expected God to heal a loved one, and instead of healing, they died. It could be that you expect, expected to hear good news from your doctor, but instead the doctor called you with troubling news. It could be that you expected your parents to stay together, but maybe your mom or your dad left and they ended up getting a divorce. Maybe you expected to get a certain job, to go to a certain school, but the letter came in the mail, the text or the email was sent to you telling you, unfortunately, and it was news of rejection. You expect it to be married by now, and to, but, but you're still single, and there aren't any good prospects. You expected your marriage to last until death do you part, but, but you ended up getting a divorce. Maybe you expected to have a baby or babies, but you lost the baby. You lost the babies, and you're unable to conceive. At least that's what the doctor is telling you. You expected to leave this earth before your child, but your son or your daughter, they left before you died. 
you expected to be in a place financially that was pretty stable. When you look at your life right now, you're nowhere close where you want to be financially. You expected a, a deep desire, a dream to come to pass. But now it feels like it will never come to pass. There's so many chapters in life, so many events in life that leave us feeling disappointed. And the thing I want you to know, friends, is that you and I are not the first and we won't be the last who feel disappointed with God. And I want you to know this morning that God is big enough to handle these emotions. And so in the prayer that we are reading this morning, there is a struggle. And I want to use that word deliberately. There is a struggle to reconcile the God of the past or the God of history or the God that we've known with the God of the present. And it's one thing to know the stories about what God did in the history of God. But what about now and what about me? And I feel that is what these people are saying. They're disappointed. And you, you hear it in the questions that they're asking. And if you have your Bibles open, you could go back to Isaiah 63 and look at the four questions that they ask in the prayer. They said, where is the one who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? And you know what they're referring to, right? When God delivered his children at the Red Sea. Where is the one who put within them his Holy Spirit? Where are your zeal and your might? And then this last question, why, O Lord, do you make us stray from your ways? In other words, what I hear them saying is, God, where are you? And if you're there, we could use your help right now. And I think this then takes us into this, this very gut-wrenching cry in Isaiah chapter 64 and verse 1. Oh, that you would tear open the heavens and you would come down so that the mountain would quake at your presence. And when God seems absent, when God seems silent, when God seems hidden, when God seems unresponsive to human suffering, you can count on it, there will be levels of disappointment. And I'm in the business of trying to help people overcome their disappointment as clergy. And there are theologians and there are philosophers and there are people of all ages who try to explain the reasons for God's silence or God's absence. Lots of reasons and explanations. Some people say, well, the reason why God is absent is because the very notion of God is mythical. It's a fairy tale. God is wishful thinking, said Sigmund Freud. God is made up. And, and the reason why you need God is because you simply can't cope with the realities of your life. That's one explanation. Is it the best explanation? I don't think so. Another reason some people say God is absent is because God is dead. And years ago, I read Elie Wiesel's book, Night. And when I read his account as a young man being in a, sea, a Nazi death camp, and reading that again helped me to understand how life's tragedies, how life's difficulties can undermine and even eviscerate faith. 
he and his father were in a column of Jews who were being led toward a massive fire pit. And Elie Wiesel said he could hear the screams of the people. People were being incinerated. People around him, he said, were already praying Kaddish. They were saying prayers to the dead. He said he heard his own father starting to pray. And he writes, and this is what got me, he said, for the first time, I felt anger rising within me. Why should I sanctify his name, the Almighty, the Eternal, and terrible master, he said, of the universe? Why? This almighty God, this master of the universe, has now chosen to be silent. What was there to thank him for? And Elie Wiesel wrote these, these six words. He said, that was the night God died. Now again, I don't believe God is dead. But that's another way people try to explain it. Maybe there was a God, but that God is now dead to the circumstances of our world. And then some of you remember the late Rabbi Kushner. After watching his beloved son die from premature aging, he wrote out of his pain a book that has helped millions of people around the world why bad things happen to good people. And one of the things that he said, he said a lot of good things in the book that are worth grabbing and pondering, but he said some things in the book that I question. And one of the things he said in the book is that, yes, God is present, but God is incapable of fixing the earth's woes. Disappointment with God. And we find ourselves trying to discover where is God? What is going on? How could this happen? Is there really a God? But I want you to know that it's okay to express that disappointment, to express that lament. More than 75% more than of the book of Psalms is really about laments, people crying out to God. And it's okay to pray that way. But another thing this prayer helps us to understand is the importance of honesty with God. And that kind of goes along with what I just said. If we're going to be honest with God, we're going to be disappointed. We're going to say it. We're going to express it. And so what I, what I find compelling about the prayer in 63 into 64 is that the prayer is honest. It's personal. It's sorrowful. They're not, they're not just deflecting blame on God. They're also looking at themselves. They're also wondering, where am I in this equation? Is there something I could have done? And when you read the prayer, you're discovering that they're sorry for their sin. Now, I want to be very careful here because I'm not one of those people who say, well, the reason why I'm suffering is because my grandfather did this or I did this. And the reason why I'm suffering is because God is punishing me. I didn't help that old lady across the street. And so God is punishing me. And there are people who literally believe that there's a God in heaven who is sitting and just waiting. And the minute you step out of line, God zaps you. And you remember in John 9 when the disciples saw the man blind from birth and they said, Lord, notice what they said, Lord, who sinned? Was it the boy's father? Was it somebody in their family? And the assumption is you do wrong, then you 
you get punished and pain and suffering comes down upon you. I want to be careful about this because not all of life's hardships are the result of human failure and sin. But in this case, in this case, the people, as they examined themselves, as they were being honest with themselves before God, they said, yes, the choices that we made. God sent us so many prophets. God sent us so many resources to remind us that we need to, we need to shed all of the adultery and all of the idolatry and all of the sins we were committed. God even told us that if you don't do that, I'm going to move you out of the land. They knew that. And they kept on defying God. So as they searched themselves, they were very honest with God. And I think that's what prayer ought to do when we pray honestly with God, to God. It leads to this awareness of self. And yes, it leads to confession. And so when you look at Isaiah 64 and verse 6, they said, We, and this is honesty now, we have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like filthy cloth. That's what they said. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities, our iniquities, there's the, there's the honesty, like the wind, it takes us away. Notice what they say in verse 7. There is, there is no one who calls on your name. No one attempts to take hold of you. And I love that imagery of people taking hold of God. And they said, no one's doing that. For you have hidden your face from us, and you have, you have delivered us into the hand of our iniquity. And there's a lot of that resonance, that echo within Scripture in Paul in Romans 1, where God hands us over to our own way. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. You know, that's the, that's the honesty that God is asking for us as we lift up our prayers to God. And you say, well, why is that important? And I went back to Rabbi Kushner's book, and he said, well, one of the things you, why we need to be honest is because so often that is when we begin to discover what we need to do. When we're busy deflecting, when we're busy blaming, when we're busy... Uh, you know, reflecting all that's happening to us outside of ourselves and others, we miss the opportunity to look within. That's why honesty is important. But here's the last thing I want you to know and how this prayer helps us with ourselves, with others. It helps us with God. It helps us put our hope in God, which takes us to the message of Advent. Because the message of Advent is that God drew near. Almighty God seems absent. Almighty God seems distant. Almighty God seems not to care. That's, the, that's what the philosophers and clergy and other people are concluding when they look at 2020. When they look at the, the, the millions of people who have already died and will die from this virus. Where is God? God doesn't care. Don't, don't look to the heavens. But the message of Advent is that, yes, God cares. God drew near. Almighty God seems absent, but God came near. And we know that because God came in the incarnation. God took on flesh. and God walked among us. 
and God showed his love for us. And so when I talk about hope, hope is more than wishful thinking. Hope, true hope, is at the heart of the promise that is born at Advent. But it's difficult to arrive there without becoming open and vulnerable. You know, I'm disappointed. God, you know, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm hurting. We can't paper this over with Christmas lights. We don't want to paper this over with Christmas music. We don't want to paper this over with these very plastic, insincere smiles. We, if, if we're going to grab hold of the hope of Advent, then we must be honest as to where we are. And so for me and for you, I hope that Advent is not a season of just passively waiting for December the 25th. But yes, it can be a season of wailing and weeping and opening, opening up our lives and our souls to God, anticipating that weeping may endure for a night, but joy is coming in the morning. So let me just quote C.S. Lewis again. It's his birthday after all. Let me just quote him again. C.S. Lewis took particular pleasure in comparing the Christian faith to a rising sun. And he said that just as the sun illuminates the landscape, allowing us to see things that were otherwise hidden in darkness, he said, so God through Jesus casts light on a dark world. And if there's anything that brings darkness, if there is anything that conjures up doubt and fear, it's when we are in desperate circumstances. We need the light of Christ to remind us, to give us that big picture on the Christian faith. It reminds us that, look, we're only seeing through a glass darkly. We're not seeing the whole picture. We're not seeing the whole landscape when we are shrouded in our troubles and our hardships. There are many more moves. There are many more pieces. There are many more things that we cannot see. And it's our faith and our confidence and our hope that God has come near that begins to shine light on the big picture of our faith so that we're able to see all the way to the end of the book of Revelation. And so I love this prayer, guys. I love it, and I want you to love it too, because it moves us from the darkness of disappointment. It moves us to a place of honesty about where we really are. And this prayer then could help us even to grab hold of the sunshine of hope in God. Hope in God. And I saw that in 64 and verse 8, chapter 64 and verse 8, 8 where we find reference to God as our Father, reference to God as our Creator. And listen to what they started praying. This is the hope now. He says, Yet, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are the potter, and we are all the work of your hand. Now, that's hope. That's not, that's not fantasy. That's not Pollyannish. In the midst of all of the difficulties, this is what causes us to stand and to hold on. You are still our Father. You are the potter. We are the clay. We are the work of your hand. And it doesn't mean we are 
escaping the troubles of this world. Hope says things are really, really bad. 2020 is really, really bad. We can't heal ourselves. We can't save ourselves. Things are dark, but nevertheless, there is hope. And that's the Advent message. And I went back and I read again from the Gospel of John, where the Gospel of John quotes Isaiah again. And he says, On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. And notice it doesn't say that the light was formed from within the world. It says that a light has dawned. In other words, that light came from the outside. And there is light, friends, outside of what we call planet Earth. There is light outside of the circumstances of our world that we can't see, that Jesus has brought this light into our lives, into our world to save us because he is the light of the world. So I want to ask you a question as I close. Where are you today? Where are you today? Are you dealing with a set of challenges that are pulling you down? Are you in some desperate circumstances? Well, let me just, let me just encourage you. Just be honest about that. And the second thing I want you to consider is to get some help. And I want to offer to you one of the homegrown resources from our church. I would like to offer to you the care and the love and the support of one of our Stephen ministers. And you say, well, why? What role might a, a Stephen minister play in my life right now, Pastor Ray? I'm, I'm struggling. I'm struggling with God. Why, why would I need a Stephen minister? Well, here's the thing you need to understand. Stephen ministers are people in our church. I'm talking about people right here, our people who are trained to provide one-to-one -one care to those experiencing a difficult time in life. You could be going through grief. You could be dealing with the aftermath of a divorce. You could be dealing with job loss. You could be dealing with anxiety and all kinds of issues brought on by 2020. Stephen ministers are real people. They come from all walks of life. They share a passion. They have a love for bringing Jesus' love and Jesus' care to those who are in need. And many of them have walked your road before or might even be walking it right now. So why not call me? Or you could even call the number that's on the screen and someone in the person of Deb Cross, one of our Stephen leaders, will connect with you and try to point you in the direction of hope. So again, I know this is a strange way to begin Advent, right? We're talking about weeping and lament, but so often, my brothers and sisters, that is the gateway to joy. It's the gateway to hope. Joy and hope seem so much sweeter when we come through a dark night. By the way, let me, let me just, just remind you, and I know many of you know this, C.S. Lewis did not give up. Yes, he said he felt like walking away. He felt like the heavens were double-bolted and God was just off on vacation, but he didn't give up. He was able to say, and I quote him, he says, I've gradually been coming to feel that the door is no longer shut and bolted. 
He came to see that God's silence during his grief was not a sign of indifference. It was not a sign of cruelty or abandonment. Rather, he says, God has been at work for good in his life in ways he could not see, he could not sense, he could not imagine, bringing him into a deeper experience of the Lord than he had ever, ever known before. There is hope, my friends. There is hope. And I encourage you as you pray your desperate prayers to realize that God hears you, God sees you, God knows you. And there is hope, both here, right now, on this first Sunday of Advent, and through all time. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, all God's people say, Amen. <laughs>